Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Bad is not going to leave you alone just because you are a good person. Bad makes its living trying to make you forget about what is good. Bad doesn't care that you go to work on time, give to charitable organizations, and help old ladies across the street. Oh no. What you call bad times, bad experiences, and sometimes bad people are going to find their way into your life. Working its way into the lives of good people is what makes bad so bad. Bad is not going to pass you by because you have an I love you bumper sticker on your car, own a string of rosary beads, or know how to meditate. Get real. Bad is going to show up in any disguise available in an attempt to beat you up, knock you down, run you over, and tear you apart. Good. Show bad that you are made of good. You are made of divine power, infinite wisdom, pure love, and powerfully piercing insight. Show bad that you have unshakable faith and staying power. Demonstrate to bad that you are put together with the unfathomable intelligence of the chief architect of the universe, who issued a lifetime warranty on the durability of your goodness. Put on your faith. Until today, you may have forgotten that you are good enough to withstand anything that you may call bad. Just for today, flex your faith muscles and shake your good fist in bad's face. It's here in the Archbishop's Corner where Archbishop Leonard Blair reminds us to put on faith to face the bad. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for sharing some time with us, welcoming us into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Archbishop, this past week on Wednesday, Connecticut celebrated the March for Life. Do you want to tell us about that, your reaction, and uh, were you pleased with the number of people that showed up for the march? Oh, I was extremely pleased. I, You know, this was an initiative of the Connecticut Catholic Conference. Mr. Chris Healy, who is uh, the head of that and a wonderful staff, uh, they put together in conjunction with the National March for Life uh, people uh, a state march for life here in Connecticut that took place on the 23rd. And uh, I did the opening prayer. There were, there were other people there uh, from other faiths, a bishop from, from one of the African-American uh, churches in here in Hartford also spoke, Hispanic representation and others. These were all people who were very pro-life and included a lot of our young people, representative mm. student groups from the various high schools. It was a rally uh, in support of life. And, and against abortion, obviously, but not just that. It was it was also to promote the care we and accompaniment we try to give to uh, women who are in difficult situations with you know, so that to try to help them so that they don't want to have to have an abortion. There's tremendous work being done in that regard. We met on the Capitol steps here in Hartford and uh, had a march around the park by the Capitol, Bushnell, and then came back. And I have to say, being up in the front, you know, with the speakers, I didn't appreciate just how many people were there until uh, we actually started to do the march. Uh -huh. There were a lot of people there. Uh, I don't know how what the estimates will be, but they were hoping for 2,000, and I am, I am sure there were more than 2,000 people there. 
Uh, and of course, the police had a cordoned off for us to make the mar- march around the around the park and back to the Capitol. I think this is a very powerful thing. I, you know, for years have go- gone to Washington every every year uh, for the annual Right to Life March in January. COVID uh, interrupted that, at least our participation in it. But having a state march this year was very important. And I do think I make an appeal to all of our listeners. You know, people in politics emphasize contacting your state legislators really does make a difference. They keep count of how many phone calls, how many postcards, how many letters they get. And they ascribe a certain number to each of those calls. They may say that one, you know, I mean, this has been shown through surveys and such, that one person who makes a call can be counted on to represent really X number of people in the community who feel the same way. Your contacting of your legislators really does make a difference. And the Connecticut Catholic Conference, which you can see online, they have a website. I think you can reach it through our Archdiocesan website as well. As well as Uh, the Office of Radio and Television and WJMJ website. Yes. That all of these things, you know, I I implore people to, to, from a, a perspective of morality and faith, to be a participant in this. You don't have to leave your house even to do it. You don't necessarily have to come out for a march, although it's wonderful for the people who did. That's important, too. But if you make known to your legislators what your, you know, uh, your thoughts are on this, uh, and of course I am appealing to people that I I believe share uh, our faith uh, about what is right and wrong and the kinds of things that we need to promote in our society. Well, we need to stand up for life, don't we? Well, we need to stand up for a lot of things. Look at what's happening in in Ukraine now and the people that are being slaughtered there. Uh, uh, That's also happening with uh, the unborn children that has been going on for for years now, ever since Roe v. Wade was adjudicated in favor of abortion on demand, basically, in this country. So it's about about time we stand up for life and say that human life is very valuable, not only in Ukraine, but in the womb at its very first beginnings. Well, there were some very eloquent speakers at this rally, one of whom was supposed to be aborted. And it's a very moving story in the hospital of what happened, how a janitor came up to her mother, who was very upset, kind of encouraged her that about doing this. And, and she, she left because of that. You know, a person can make a life or death difference for somebody else if they, with compassion, I mean, this wasn't yeah. somebody coming and lecturing her or hollering at her. It was someone trying to comfort her and saying, do you really want to do this? You know, uh, God can help you, uh, that kind of thing. So we're not shaking our finger and yelling at people. That's, that's not what this is about, uh, even for our country. We do so much now to try to help women in difficulty, as I'm, I, I think I've mentioned. Uh, there are a lot of people who want to make hate. Uh, can, if the Supreme Court uh, overturns in some uh, fashion Roe versus Wade, they and it goes to the states. Their efforts now to make Connecticut a, uh, you know, an abortion zone that with through many strange things, you know, uh, a bill to let people other than doctors perform abortions, for example, midwives, making it a refuge for people who have committed something illegal in other states that have prohibited abortion, to make the right to abortion part of our state constitution in Connecticut. Those are the kinds of of really radical things that are being proposed. We have to be out there in the front lines uh, with our charity, with our, our help to people in need, but also to, to say that this, this has to stop. I mean, when you consider that there are over 60 million abortions that have taken place in the United States mm. 
in the last, since Roe versus Wade. I mean, that's 20 million more than the population of Ukraine today. I mean, that's more than the populations of many countries in the world. I mean, what are we doing? I think people of of, of good faith and, and will, you know, can appreciate what's going on here. So anyway, to conclude, I was very uh, pleased event was so successful. And not only politically or socially and the media and all that stuff, but in the eyes of God, I think it really counts for something important. Will this be an annual occurrence here in, in the state of Connecticut? The organizers hope to make it so, yes. Um, and so we'll just see where that goes. Tomorrow, we celebrate the birth anniversary of two saints, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John Newman. St. Teresa of Avila founded the Discalced Carmelites, and St. John Newman was the first male saint from the United States that helped Catholicism grow here in America. These two saints made enormous contributions throughout their lives. How important do you think it is for Catholics of all ages to study the lives of the saints and learn from their stories, Archbishop? Well, it's extremely important because no two people are alike and no two saints are alike. And the path to holiness uh, is different for each person. So, you know, the saints show us how to do it. uh, And they do it in the most remarkably diverse ways. I mean, their saints live totally different kinds of lives. Uh, Each story is very unique, uh, but it's a life of heroic virtue. Sometimes the heroism is confined to a cave uh, in the desert uh, Mm -hmm. as a monk. And other times it's uh, carried out in the the busyness of the world and doing all kinds of things, you know, for good. So, uh, you know, the saints show us how it's done. Uh, Becoming a saint is not some abstract philosophy. It's about living and and how to live. Do you have a favorite saint? Oh, I pray to so many of them. I can't say that I have any one saint that's above all others. Well, Tuesday marks the 140th anniversary of the founding of the Knights of Columbus right here in Connecticut. With members totaling nearly 2 million, they are the largest Catholic fraternal service organization in the world. Their headquarters are in New Haven, and they operate a museum that's open to the public free of charge. The Knights have done some great work for the Church, not only in this country, but beyond. And now they're spearheading a campaign to help the people of Ukraine. Can you speak to that, Archbishop? Well, yes, the Knights, uh, you know, uh, have been around for a long time and have cast a wide net of spirituality and service among Catholic men, uh, not only in our own country, but in other places, too, including uh, Ukraine. They are present there. So they're able right now to have that uh, relief fund uh, for Ukraine. Um, Of course, there are many charities collecting uh, things to help the Ukrainian people. I made my personal contribution to the Knights uh, Fund, Relief Fund, and have made that known on our Archdiocesan website that they, they are a charity there. But there are many others, too, in the church um, that that are uh, trying to help. Uh, but, of course, the Knights have particular meaning for us because uh, their founder, Blessed Michael McGivney, was a priest of the Archdiocese of Hartford, recently mm. beatified, whose feast day on the church calendar is August 13th. And uh, they uh, are headquartered, as you say, in New Haven, where they were founded. So... I'm going to be the celebrant, actually, for their Founders' Day uh, Mass uh, this year, uh, which is not a huge event. It's it's meant for the the leadership of the Knights there in in, um, in New Haven, and uh, it's a it's a, a blessed event. Well, you may have heard the phrase "the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence." It turns out that um, that might not always be the case. Sometimes things may actually be browner. That's why. Wednesday is grass is always browner on the other side of the fence day, believe it or not. 
Where this, do you find these things? It, it takes a lot of hard work and research, Archbishop, believe me. <laughs> this day, I always think you have some big book that, of which there are only two copies in the whole world <laughs> that give you these various days that you bring up. Well, sometimes you have to lighten it up a little bit, you know, especially, you know, with what's going on in the world today. We need an, an opportunity every now and then to look on the, the brighter side. And even if the grass is greener, Wednesday is the grass is always browner. And what that day is talking about is taking stock in things, whether it be, for instance, a roof over your head or a family, a job or something less than that. Do you think it's wise to remind ourselves that things could be worse on the other side of the fence? In other words, browner on the other side of the fence so that we start appreciating what we have, you know, and realize that things could always be worse, but we don't have it that bad. Do you think it's beneficial for us to remind ourselves then, Archbishop, that life is what we make it and recognize all that we truly have? Well, yes, indeed. You know, every life has uh, its sunny days and its rainy days, and uh, it's just part of life, uh, the good and the bad, sometimes the ugly, the tragic. And, uh, you know, the gospel reminds us of this, that uh, especially if we try to live a Christian life, a virtuous life, we are going to have crosses and trials and troubles and tribulations. Uh, It's part of the human condition in a sinful and fallen world. But, uh, you know, in the Stations of the Cross that we have during Lent, you know, we commemorate three times that Jesus fell on the way of the cross, and he got up. And we also hear how Simon of Cyrene and Veronica and, and, and others tried to help Jesus on the way to give him some comfort. And so, too, for us, we, we get comforted by one another, and we need to comfort one another uh, in, the, in the trials and tribulations of life. But in the end, it's a matter of faith, hope, and love, the three great theological virtues that keep us going, uh, and they really are inseparable. We need all three. And uh, anybody who reads the gospel and anybody who reads the life of our Lord and and sees even his passion and death, I mean, he underwent the worst that the world can throw against anybody, but it led to the resurrection, and we have to do the same. It's the way of the cross. Well put. Friday is the start of the month of April, and it's National Donate Life Month. This month encourages Americans to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors and honors those who have saved lives through the gift of donation. Is there an official position of of the Church on Organ Donation, Archbishop? Yes, certainly. It's uh, considered a uh, proper thing to do, a charitable thing to do, but with this caution that these things cannot be I hate to use the word, but it's the word they use, can't be harvested from a person if, until they're truly dead. And that we have to be very, very careful of, uh, that uh, people d- d- don't uh, jump the gun, so to speak, uh, of, of doing these kinds of things. But, but once a person truly is dead, uh, then uh, it is uh, uh, you know, acceptable. And I know that there's controversy, has been some controversy about brain death, uh, this is um, something that moral theologians and even the Holy See has taken a look at from the point of view of uh, being morally illicit or not. But to answer your question very simply, yes, it, it, it's, it's acceptable. Saturday is the celebration of the most popular sandwich in America. What is it? Do you have any idea, Archbishop? No, I don't. I don't give much thought to these things, Father John. <laughs> well, it's peanut butter and jelly. Really? Yes. The average American will have eaten over 2,000 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches by the time they graduate from high school. 
Oh, well, there you go. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, that, that yes, I think of, of kids eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches, but I don't think of adults doing it so much. At least I haven't in a long time. Neither uh, have I. I can't even think of the last time I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Can you? They're perfectly good, but it's not something that uh, when you say it's a favorite sandwich in the country, I am surprised. Yeah. Well, let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this fourth Sunday of Lent, the 27th day of March. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter, and after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes murmured. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country, and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed swine. He would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. The servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, You killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Archbishop, this is perhaps the most familiar and most loved of all the parables of Jesus. Talk to us about its significance. Well, it's the prodigal son that is a magnificent parable by which Jesus reveals the attitude of God, our loving Father, toward us when we stray. And the fact that, very simply, even articulated in the Old Testament, that God does not wish the death of the sinner, 
but wishes the sinner to repent and to and to be given life. I would encourage all of our listeners to open your your Bible, your New Testament, to Luke chapter 15, and meditate on this a little bit for Lent. Mm. You know, we've heard it dramatically presented, but I think it would be good, you know, it's a general thing for, for our spiritual life that we, we actually sit down ourselves sometimes and read the scriptures, not always have it read to us, and ask God to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to, to uh, go deeply into the meaning of this parable for you and for me. It's the, the loving father who kills the fatted calf and, and celebrates because a son who was ungrateful and who squandered many things and lived a sinful life has come back and comes back repentant and reformed and receives his father's love and forgiveness. Well, it's pretty easy to see the lessons of life that we learned from the younger son, but what should we learn from the older son? Look, all these years I've served you, and not once did I disobey your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. Ah, uh, you bring up a very important point. I remember uh, Cardinal Ouellette once gave a retreat to the U.S. bishops, and he talked about this, about the older son. Mm. Uh, you know, and I think that's many of us, p- people who maybe have not gone off the deep end, we're all sinners, but we haven't gone that far. Uh, and resenting the fact that the Father would be so forgiving. And I wonder sometimes if we in ourselves don't harbor uh, thoughts of kind of divine vengeance on our uh, people we don't like or who have offended us. You know, we want to see God crush them uh, and get what they deserve. But that's not uh, the attitude uh, of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus or the New Testament, you know. I have to catch myself sometimes, you know, uh, these days with somebody like Mr. Putin, you know, yeah. who oh, yeah. is, the, you know, in many respects is just perpetrating horrible evil on the world and on the Ukrainian people. And you want to say, what kind of devil is this? But even there, we have to heed what our Lord says. And while we can absolutely condemn the actions, we have to pray for his conversion, not for his condemnation, but we have to pray that, that he will have a change of heart and be converted and live. And that's true of many situations, not in the world in general, but in our own uh, daily lives. Well, through the sacrament of reconciliation, we as priests are put into a wonderful situation, a situation in which we, in the role of the Father, can welcome back the sinner, the prodigal. Can you speak of how you personally feel in your role celebrating the sacrament of reconciliation, Archbishop? Well, I think you hit upon something very important, and that is that in the confessional, the priest is not there to scold people. The priest is there to receive them back into the Father's uh, embrace. And obviously, that doesn't mean some kind of mushy, sentimentalized thing. Uh, it, because sin is sin, it is, it is an offense, and, and um, it's a betrayal of, of the Father's love and of the love we should have for others. But when a person comes to confession, well, you know, it's the old saying, hate the sin but love the sinner. And uh, people today scoff at that, you know, particularly about the church's moral teaching. Uh, They think because we hate the sin, that means we somehow hate the sinner, and it's not true. But in the confessional, uh, you know, some people, as you know, hearing confessions, uh, really have had a difficult time or they've come to a moment of conversion and repentance. And uh, I'm very happy to to, uh, rejoice with them at being absolved of their sins, not by me, but being absolved in the absolution I give in the name of Christ. Let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Ava from Litchfield says, 
Two of my friends from high school are getting married next year. The bride comes from a Greek Orthodox family but isn't currently practicing her religion, and I'm not sure of the groom's religious upbringing. They're planning on getting married in a non-religious civil ceremony and have asked me to officiate their wedding by becoming a justice of the peace. As a Catholic, a practicing Catholic, is this okay for me to do? You know, this is a very timely question. Uh, I had no idea you were going to ask it, and I, I, I have to say this was something that came up in a discussion here in the Archdiocese just a couple of days ago. Mm. And I was kind of surprised, I guess I'm out of the loop of how people live these days sometimes, that individual lay Catholics are asked to, how did you get accredited to be a minister of religion for a day or something, to marry somebody? And I have to say to our Catholic people, I, I do not think that is at all proper for someone who would be marrying somebody uh, invalidly. That is to say that they are a baptized Catholic, and in this case also validly baptized uh, Orthodox, and are supposed to be bound by canonical form by a, a priest or deacon and two witnesses and are not doing that for whatever reason. I don't think that's a, the right thing to do, quite honestly. I haven't even started to think about what this means for people who of no baptism or no religion. I, I, I mean, it boggles my mind to even think that such things happen nowadays, uh, of people getting certified for a day to be a, to witness a marriage, uh, if I'm understanding correctly. Or justice but in of this the case, peace. In this case, yeah. Yeah, and of course, if you are a devout Catholic and you're justice of the peace, you can do these things. That's, but that's different. That's very different than than just signing up for a day or two to do that to accommodate somebody who are going to be entering into an invalid marriage that's not sacramental when it should be. And I'm predicating my answer here on the basis that you said that one of the parties is Greek Orthodox, and therefore they should be married uh, according to that that church. So I'm, I'm giving an answer that maybe I'm going out on the limb a little bit here because I haven't had a chance to consult canonically about this. I'm just giving you, though, my initial reaction that I, I don't... I, 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 I would not recommend doing that personally. Paula from New Britain says, The Archbishop of Assisi is bringing a relic of Blessed Carlo Acutis' heart from Italy to New York City on April 3rd. It will be present for the U.S. Bishop's National Eucharistic Revival Campaign, of which the Italian Blessed is a patron. Is the Church's teaching on the veneration of relics Scripture-based? Well, it's not contrary to Scripture. I mean, it's... it's one of the most ancient uh, of practices, and it has to do—it's uh, ultimately rooted in veneration uh, or respect for the remains of the dead. Contrary to all this stuff about today uh, being turned into goo and poured down the sewer, as and I'm not kidding when I say that, instead of uh, being buried according to the mind of the church with uh, burial or cremation, uh, or you know having somebody turned into an artificial stone you wear around your neck— the, the church is always, and the Old Testament has always had veneration for the tombs of people. Veneration of a relic is simply an extension of, of that practice of the the veneration of the remains of the deceased, uh, or respect for the for the remains of the, the deceased. And when the deceased person happens to be someone who is declared blessed or canonized as a saint, then those remains take on a, a particular significance. Uh, there's certainly nothing contrary to scripture in it, and it and it comes out of that scriptural reality of, of respect for the, for the remains of the dead. Joseph from Canton says, Pope Francis has consecrated Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. What does that mean exactly, and why is this significant? 
Well, it's significant because uh, in the apparitions of Our Lady at Fatima in 1917, Our Lady, and these apparitions, they're not an article of faith, but the Church has certainly, after extensive investigation and a whole tradition and many signs even from heaven, has given approbation to this being being worthy of belief. And uh, the First World War was raging, and Mary asked for this uh, to be consecrated to her intercession. And so the, uh, inasmuch as the Church does do this, uh, it seems that this is a very dire moment for Ukraine and Russia. And to really, uh, when we say we're consecrating the country, we're, we're speaking principally of the people, uh, you know, consecrating the Ukrainian and, and Russian people, because they're both being mistreated here. The Ukrainian people most cruelly by bombs and, and destruction and death, and the Russian people by uh, being lied to, and also the consequences for them, which will be not just economic, but uh, spiritual and moral uh, and, and social and cultural. This is this, the kind of thing that we want to commend to the intercession of the Blessed Mother. Archbishop, thank you for that. And can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, in the world today, we are surrounded by destruction and death. We see it visibly, painfully, on the news in Ukraine, but we're also surrounded by the death of over 60 million unborn children who have been aborted in the United States in the last half century or so, and in the disruption and moral chaos in many people's lives today. So we pray, dear Lord, that whether that ordeal is physical, material, or spiritual, or psychological, we pray for your healing grace, the, the grace of the Holy Spirit to descend upon us, that during this Lenten season in particular, we individually and as a nation may turn away from sin and believe in the gospel, and that we might find peace not only in uh, the world, but also in our hearts and souls. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to meeting you again next week, same time. Thank you.